смогу процитировать Александра Сергеевича Пушкина, потому что просто, к сожалению, к своему стыду даже не помню это стихотворение. Но заканчивается оно этой строкой. Доволен ли, «Доволен ли ты сам, взыскательный художник?» А все, что, все, что выше в его стихах, это перечисление просто тех самых критериев, что ли. Ну, то есть он отметает суд толпы, мнение издателя всех наперечет. И в финале говорит, главный критерий твой собственный, ты сам доволен ли тем, что ты сделал? Uh, вот I... это, пожалуй, единственная мерила. Um, I would like to um, start, start with Alexander Pushkin's uh, poem, in which in the poem he says, um, you, are you happy yourself? Uh, you, you're the judge of your, yourself, uh, the writer. Um, so he, um, in his, this poem, Pushkin told, says about uh, the criticism and all that it's not, um, and the publishers, it's not as important. The most important thing is that what you yourself, the writer, think. Right up at the back there, right, yeah. Thank you. Um, hi. Um, thank you. Uh, hi. Uh, first of all, I want to thank you for such a strong, powerful movie. And uh, my question is, you brought up the war in Ukraine, 2015, and what did you want to tell by that particular episode? К сожалению, длинный ответ, и мне даже казалось, я не знаю, что говорил Александр, мне казалось, что речь пришла об этом периоде в политической и социальной жизни России последние два года, не последние два года, а два года, которые мы охватываем нашей картиной, это 2012 год и 2015 Uh, it uh, will be quite a long answer, and I think Alexander mentioned in his um, in his answer um, that uh, that the two years that we uh, it's political situation that the two years that we cover between 2012 and 2015. Но это можно сказать ровно тот самый период времени осень 12 и начало зимы 15 года, когда вот в этот период времени случились значительное количество событий в политической жизни, о которых можно было бы сказать, как завинчивание гаек, скажем так. Свободы схлопнулись, и люди, которые в 2012 году еще жили надеждами на изменения к лучшему, на изменение политического климата и какого-то духовного климата в стране. Вот. И в 2015 году, когда мы столкнулись с нашим добрым соседом, который, в общем, был страна Украина, которая была для нас братской страной вдруг превратила, превратилась во врага. То есть, другими словами, за эти два года радикальное изменение политического климата Uh, from autumn 2012 to winter 2015, there was a lot of um, changes in political situation when uh, people still had hope at the beginning that um, the freedom was there, but then uh, the situation changed so drastically that um, friendly neighbor that always has been uh, there with us, uh, Ukraine, all of a sudden became an enemy. Не знаю, удалось ответить. 
Sure. I would add just very easy. You have this uh, scene at the very end of the movie which tells the story about two warring parties who disregard the human cost of their, uh, of their actions. I believe this is very, very logical. Uh, yeah, we'll just take one or two more. I, I'll take you last, but uh, this is the here. Thanks. Yeah. Я хотела в продолжении темы, вот вы говорите разность 2012 года, 2015, но вот как мне показалось, я просто хочу спросить про Варя или нет в своих размышлениях, что уже в 2012 году общество было готово, вернее, какие-то уже были потеряны, вот, судя по сюжетной линии, да, какие-то now the ghost of Rwanda was a you know kind of a policy documentary this is a much more experiential film and he's a little more laissez-faire in terms of his judgment in fact I think my view in watching having watched the film many times is that I lose the Syria argument in this film and Ben and the president win it uh, which is interesting given Greg's past work in you know in general believing that when mass atrocities happen we should do more. Um, but he didn't want to sort of wade into that. And then he did a documentary about a book I did about Sergio Vieira de Mello, who was a, a kind of James Bond UN diplomat, that's not an oxymoron, um, uh, who was tragically killed by a suicide bomber in Iraq. So I worked really closely with him. And he came to me and he said, you know, we want to do this. We think there's like a ticking clock inherent in the last year. Um, we think that all of you will be scrambling to lock down your legacies, and I, I bristle at this because it's such a—it's a very political, you know, and kind of pundit way of thinking about things. But there's like some truth. There's some truth in it still. Isn't there's there? definitely the clock is ticking. The, the, you want to achieve that's it. true, and the locking things down is true. But sometimes I feel the use of or the invocation of legacy, which is actually how a lot of the reviews of the film are being written, mm. kind of. I don't know, it seems, maybe I'm just being oversensitive, but it, 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 it seems to focus less on what you're trying to do and more about how the history books are written so about it, it, what it, you it, have It's done. a narcissistic A little, it feels yeah. a little, I don't know, yeah. it, again, I'm, I'm sure I'm not thinking about it straight, but anyway, so, so he thought this would be the legacy lockdown year, but that that would create an urgency and that there was a, you know, kind of a natural narrative arc to a year what he didn't realize is that he was making the equivalent of a horror film um, <laughs> where the whole audience knows that there's like a serial killer, killer in the kitchen and like the chumps in the film are like going around, you know, thinking they're doing their jobs and, and then and everyone in the audience is like, don't go in that room, whatever you do, do not go in that room. Um, so it turned out very differently than he expected and um, of course now it's it's likely to be a much more celebrated, attended um, film. But, you know, I keep insisting with Greg, I keep, I keep, you know, going to him and saying, okay, you would trade fewer people in your audiences in the theater for not having that outcome in the election, right? You know, and, and what does he say? He's, he claims that yes. Jesus, I, I should hope so, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I should hope so. But, but one, one just last thing on this, sorry, Ron, but the, um, the antibodies in the U.S. government, when I then, I was like, oh, this is a great idea, I'm this filmmaker, we're going to do this. You know, it was just like, 
you know, all sirens blaring, you know, this is a crazy idea. And I said, look, I was an activist and a journalist outside the government, at, you know, like I did this, like you guys, uh, Katrina and, and, and who I did the Q&A with earlier and you, you know, trying to get government people to talk to me. And then I got to go in with the intruder alert alarm going off in my head and be in the situation room. And I'm inspired, even when I'm losing an argument or battling it out or so frustrated, there is an integrity of purpose to this exercise. And I think the more that people have my version of my experience, which is that they get to not just to see what comes out of the machinery, which is often not that pretty or, you know, like Syria, not that successful, but instead get a little bit behind the curtain they are going to have more faith in our institutions than they otherwise would. The box score, as we would say in American sports alone, is part of the fact, part of the reason that no one has faith in our institutions anymore. They don't see the humanity of, of the enterprise. And so, because I had lived that journey as someone who was outside and got to go inside, I thought well, if I could, if somehow a filmmaker could provide that kind of exposure, that would be only to the good. And the key person, so I was the proselytizer on behalf of Greg's agenda and HBO's agenda, but Ben is really the gatekeeper. So without Ben um, having green-lighted it and then gone to Obama and made the case to him, it, it wouldn't have happened. Or it would have been like a little documentary set in New York <laughs> uh, at the UN or in these refugee but, camps. But in order to tell a story like that, any filmmaker has to find the human stories within the broader the broader picture and it seems to me that the film even though there are intensely human elements to, to all the characters if I may call them that including yeah. Barack Obama in the film you're the one who who is most is revealed at their most exposed there are times when you're on the verge of tears or in tears there are there are moments with, with you know with your family so in a way he constructed it so that you're the emotional heart of the film. Is that because I just you're really... Oh, maybe you just... Maybe no, none of the rest of them cry. I don't know. Uh, does Barack Obama cry? I'm not sure. Yes. He does cry. I've seen him. Well, we've all seen him, we've seen him cry, actually. Yes. Is that, how difficult is that for you, having your children on screen and having them as part of this? Well, the, it's interesting you mentioned the crying. Um, you know, I'm, I'm very conscious, not in the film, but in, in life, or was very conscious of being a woman in national security, uh, you know, in the national security establishment in Washington, there, you know, the, the numbers are very skewed uh, toward men. And then I was a woman in New York at the UN and uh, there's never been a woman UN Secretary General. Uh, there was only one woman in the Security Council as an ambassador among the 15 who in effect make international law. There's still only one woman, Ambassador Haley. Um, and because I'm, uh, care so much about human rights and human tend to be the one raising questions about human consequences in our decision making. The combination of being a woman and a human rights person and crying. <laughs> you know, I was like, no, this is doing great damage to the cause. Um, so Greg and I had a back and forth and he's a mensch and he cared and, and, and took that concern seriously when I saw draft cuts and and then, you know, just managed to convince me, uh, had, you know, did a bunch of screening with women who were like, oh, you know, I love Samantha, I love when she cried. And then he would send me these emails that said, Lucy, they love when you cry. <laughs> just what I always wanted, uh, you know. So 
I do not cry that much in my job. It just happened, of course, that you know he's with me over a long period of time, um, and he happened to be with me on that trip, which was uh, so ghastly into Boko Haram territory, which was which was the most moving of all. Um, but I was very conscious of that. And then on the kids, I think it is noteworthy to to open up in that way, especially given the threats. Uh, that one has to take into account um, in being a national security professional and a public figure. Um, for me, the, uh, there were two things I think that drove that pretty reflexive and not very deliberative decision. The first was when I was confirmed to become UN ambassador by the US Senate. Um, my son Declan, who was then five, I think, um, sat behind me in the Senate hearing for four hours as I was grilled by Marco Rubio and John McCain and these uh, you know, iconic Republican figures. It was not an easy confirmation hearing. And my son sat so, and he's not a very well-behaved boy as a general rule, but he sat so well-behaved behind me. And then with my, with my parents, my father's here tonight, Eddie Burke, um, and, uh, and he sat there and then it ended and he jumped into my arms and this scrum of photographers, and I wasn't used to being a, a public figure. I had been a staffer at the White House, uh, the president's human rights advisor, but not very outward facing. So suddenly, you know, the equivalent of, you know, kind of Capitol Hill wonky paparazzi, you know, are there. And Declan is in my arms and my little boy like turns to the camera and, you know, kind of. <laughs> but anyway, the consequence of this was that in the newspaper, in the Washington Post the next day, there was a photo of me and my boy and I thought, oh my gosh, like in a way this decision was made for him, but suddenly my, my, my little um, prima donna son, you know, was sort of posing for the world, uh, you know, I wouldn't, wasn't expecting that to happen. And then I started getting these emails and, and these letters from women who saw the photo, working mothers. And they just said, this is the coolest thing, you know, you're the youngest UN ambassador and you have these small kids and you're going to do this national security job and, you know, you're going to figure out this balance and that's so amazing. And just want you to know I'm inspired and thank you. And, and I thought, wow, this is an, like, you know, images and symbols, you know, can matter in a big way. So that was one factor. It really got in my head that, that actually being open about this might even do, you know, a little bit of good at the, at the margin. And then the second thing was I had so little time with my kids that if I agreed to do the documentary and then, you know, tried to ration it where I would actually have to exclude them, I'd have even less. So it, it sort of, you know, it took care of itself without a, a, all that much forethought. But I, but the reaction with this is this is the, the opening of the film is today. So we, it hasn't really been out in the world yet. But at these little screenings, you know, I do think, you know, knock on wood, that it doesn't do my kids any harm. But but that it's for the good and that it, it opens up the the indignity of the of the juggle that so many men and women are are, are doing. You know, to try to figure things out or make things work. And not everyone has a Maria. You know, I have Maria, who you got to see be, be naturalized in the film. Uh, a nanny, a lot of people are doing a comparable juggle with a lot less support than, than I had. I was listening to you speaking on a podcast and you talked about how you went to, you were asked to go to West Africa during Ebola, partly to prove to as a public statement that it was possible to do that once, once one took the right precautions. But that you discovered when you came back that the parents of the children at your child's school um, wanted your child withdrawn from the school. Yeah, it was, I mean, I wrestled with whether to go, so uh, without getting into the whole Ebola 
uh, backstory, the president, in the midst of a pure panic in the United States, and maybe you had something comparable here as well, certainly in many parts of Europe there was a, a, a panic that was similar, but the president decided to send 3,000 health workers and troops into West Africa in the, in the middle of this, and we'd had one patient die, but a bunch of nurses who, who treated uh, that patient, patient Duncan, uh, had gotten infected, and there was just a sense that it was out of control, even within the United States, and yet Obama faced that, confronted, I mean, if this happened to Trump, I, you know, I think half West Africa would disappear. Um, maybe the rest of us as well. But, um, but Obama decided to do this, it was so brave, it was so great, and, I, and, and then I thought, this is really important to show that we just have to confront our fears that we can do this, you know, the yes we can um, motto that had defined uh, the president. And, but as I was going, I was scared. I mean, I was scared as a, as a parent. You know, my son's saying, don't go, don't get Ebola, don't get Ebola, it wasn't Ebola, don't get Ebola, I don't want you getting Ebola. My husband was saying, don't go. And then even people within the cabinet were saying, uh, uh, you know, just going back over this, because I'm trying to write about it a little bit, but we're saying, don't go, what if you get, if you do get infected, <laughs> this is the government that's doing all the right things, if you do get infected, imagine what it would be like uh, imagine how it would exacerbate the fear in our country if a cabinet member got infected. <laughs> and I'm like, oh my God, what if I'm the one who causes the epidemic now to spread, you know? It's so, so definitely a movie scenario. Yeah, so there's all this backstory, but of course, you know, I don't convey any of that at the time. I just go and I look all brave, and meanwhile my thought bubble is like, like, what have I done? Anyway, and so then, but my son went to the most international school in New York City, and most of the parents at the school are UN workers, peacekeepers, aid workers. I mean, the most cosmopolitan, risk-taking, you know, parent class that you could imagine probably on planet Earth. We were at the, at the UN, and that's the, 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 the parents would, 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 I would have thought, you know, understand this to be part of one's day job. But in any event, as you said, I learned only later, weeks later, that they had gone and asked that just as aid workers were being quarantined for 21 days when they came back, so too that my son be taken out of school for, for 21 days. And I just thought, wow, like that, and, and, and it's funny you raise it because if, you, if we don't anticipate Trump sufficiently, as you can tell in the film, I think it captures that well, and we are lulled into complacency by the polls that had Senator Clinton way out in advance, but, but in a way that, the fear that Ebola generated, the fear that refugees and, you know, the stoking of fear of the other that extremists um, fueled in a way that sort of previews what ended up being such a big factor in the election, right? That, that even people who you would just think wouldn't succumb to that fear, who would look at the science or would look at the odds, when it's your kid, you know, you're, you're worried. And, and a lot of people we would never have expected to have gone in the direction of Trump or to have stayed home in the election. I think that sense of the world slipping out of control or yeah, what Trump then later characterized as carnage, that was the, the back and forth in the debate over the General Assembly speech sure. about <clears throat> which, which version of, the, which story of the world to tell. And in some ways, I think if we look back, we, we we clearly didn't crack the code on how to talk to people who were afraid. And, and, and that's exactly, I, I want to open it up to the audience sooner rather than later because I can tell it's a very engaged audience and also it's, it's getting a bit, uh, a bit late. But that seems to me where the, the core or the fulcrum of the, of the film is, you know, the, 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 the sense of the film 
always changes as soon as Obama walks into the room. So you sense everything is centering around Obama and our sense of who Obama is and what he can be. And he's a repository for dreams as well as a real, a real complex, very impressive human being. So the debate over what is the right thing to do in Syria, which goes to the core, really, of your engagement with foreign affairs and what America's engagement with the world should be over, over, the, last, over the last 20 years. But also, I think, when he talks in this, um, what some people would see as a, a very almost hyper-logical way about, yeah, about the grand yeah. narrative of history and that in the great scheme of things, everything will work out in the end and everything's trending in the right way, which, however true it may be, and Stephen Pinker wrote a good book about this a few years ago, and he has the numbers to show yeah. that the world is getting better. If it doesn't feel like that to people, it can be, a politically, it can be a disastrous way to speak to people, can't it? And maybe that was a contributory factor. Yeah, I mean, I think that the th this was at the heart of this debate that we had about the General Assembly speech, where I was arguing on the basis of my perspective, you know, which is just one perspective, but I just had a sense that people were feeling that the world was kind of spinning out of control, that the that the darkness, the forces of darkness were ascendant, and that the forces of light were recessive, and. So I made the case that, that to the president that we should try to write a speech that would address that sense that people had. And, you know, in the end, the speech actually ends up being a bit of, as, as often happens in government, it kind of splits the difference. And it, it does a version of the Steven Pinker, there's never been a better time to be alive than now, life expectancy, you know, maternal health, uh, you know, this stuff. But it does, it, it leans in a little more in my direction than I think the, the, the film portrays. But what I hadn't, Ben and I have, have because we, we now view this film as a, as a weapon to, to activate people in advance of the November election, we're, we're investing time in showing the film and in hearing from audiences on the film. And so we've had a chance to re-debate the debate that, I, that I, I think in the film, Ben wins the Syria debate with me, and I lose, and I think I win the General Assembly debate. We did uh, maybe do a show of hands uh, as to whether people agree with me. Maybe I win both debates, but I don't think so. Um, but on that one, I think I win, but in the, in the back and forth that we've had talking about that moment, and, and fundamentally about your question, um, one of the things Ben has said that is almost persuading me is he said, look, you know, what Obama was trying to do basically was speak to Trump and to, and to Trump supporters, and and to say, I don't buy into this idea of carnage and this dark vision and this exclusionary, you know, fear-mongering, you know, hatred of the other. And, and I guess I didn't, I didn't feel in saying meet them where they are that I was associating myself, you know, with this Darth Vader, you know, kind of understanding of the human condition. Um, and so the question, is, to, to your point, is how do you take the facts that you have? I mean, on Ebola... At the time when we were in full panic, when Democrats were joining Republicans and wanting to, in effect, build a wall and keep aid workers who were risking their lives out of America, like out of, you know, prevent them from coming back. At that time, more Americans had married Kardashians than had died of Ebola, <laughs> literally. But saying that and knowing that doesn't necessarily reach the person who's a parent in my son's school. It does raise the question, which is the worst fate, also. <laughs> uh, yeah. But, uh, <laughs> but, 
but but how to what how do we I mean this is a communications challenge in a way like writers and poets and and you know filmmakers mm -hmm. you know may have more insight into this than policymakers but but how to kind of meet people where they are but not succumb to it like Trump isn't meeting people where they are. he's taking them there and then he's exacerbating it and then taking a set of decisions and steps as a, as a, but as for a decision people, maker that make things work. But for people, in, in, for people in power, people yeah. are perceived as being in the elite, to, to say that everything is awesome is not a good look. Right. You know, for, but, and for, that also, for again, in fairness, people, you know? I think the film, that yeah, I, admit, I accept it. I accept yeah, it's more yeah, complex. It's a little bit of a, yeah. you know, he didn't, he didn't do that. He, know, he knows, he's, you know, he, there's a reason that he was a two-term Democratic president with the name Barack Obama. <laughs> like, you know, he had some steep odds to overcome. He's he's extraordinary at, at kind of reading the moment and the, and the mood. But 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 it goes beyond Obama and whether he's a little too clinical and a little too dispassionate and and to a core question about facts and epistemology and fear and emotion and because of polarization, at least in the states, and I don't know if this is coming here to your media environment at all. You know, we we write people say, well, how can Donald Trump, given everything he's doing, still have thirty five percent of the American people supporting him? You know, like Democrats celebrate his low approval ratings, but you know, many of us just say, how does he still have all that support? Well, the answer is they are watching media that would tell you that there is a terrorist around every corner. Uh, you know, that would fuel a belief that refugees and Hispanic immigrants are stealing your jobs, and, you know, and if you if you were just watching that 24-7, if, if that was your factual, in quotes, universe, probably some of what Trump would be saying, you know, would be more appealing, sure. and you'd be, and you'd be pleased that he was standing up to the liberal elites and their statistics oh. and their this and their that. So, so we have a lot that we're going to have to break through to, to, to get at the the, the causes that gave rise to the symptom that is that is Trump. I agree. I, I want to open it out to the audience, uh, just uh, to tell you two things. One is, really welcome questions, short questions for the benefit of your fellow audience members, statements are for the bar afterwards. Um, uh, and also, I'm the kind of person who can only read the second row of letters on, uh, on an op op opticians chart. So you'll even wave your hand very frantically. We have microphones on both sides, though. So if anybody would care to be brave enough to ask a first question. Here's somebody here in the third row back. Uh, sorry. I think there's a microphone. Sorry, hold on, just hold on to the microphone for a second. One of the first lines in the film is that you were advising Barack Obama on how to repair America's standing in the world's uh, Bush administration. Assuming that Donald Trump is a one-term president, um, how would you advise the next president on how to repair America's standing in 2021? Um, great question. And uh, the biggest, I mean, to imagine being America's ambassador to the UN after Trump and you know, wanting to start from scratch and say, oh, yeah, we're back, hey, guys, high five. You know, it's not, that's not gonna work that well. Um, so let me come back to that, but let me say that part of the answer is the story we tell about these four years. And, um, you know, right now, we have a story of great state-sponsored cruelty, a retreat, a breaking of America's promise on climate, on potentially on Iran, on Cuba, on, trade on, I mean, it's, the list goes on. Um, but there's a parallel story, right, about these special elections that are being held where the Trump set of policies, or at least the Trump way, 
is being repudiated in very dramatic ways. I mean, huge, like 35, 40 percentage point shifts, state senate races, you know, obscure races that nobody normally would be paying that much attention to, but, the, you know, were 20 percentage points for Trump, and now we're 15 percentage points for, you know, some working mom who's decided to throw her hat in the ring because she's so horrified by him, uh, you know, being our leader. Um, so there's that electoral story, which will culminate in November, this coming November, where we have a chance to, you know, do an all-systems repudiation. I mean, a Senate that really shouldn't be in play because so many Democratic seats are vulnerable and so few Republican seats are, is now in play because the numbers in the recent elections show such a dramatic shift away from the Republican Party, in part because they are seen as being complicit with the agenda that the President's put forward. And the House, of course, very much in play. I mean, we have um, you know, a 24-seat difference, and there are 23 districts that were won by uh, Hillary, but also by Republican members of Congress. So right there, you, know, you have your, your target set just as a, as a first cut, and, and districts that have been seen as safe Republican districts are no longer seen. So in November, we will tell that story. Our courts are helping tell the story you know, by rejecting Trump's effort to throw out trans transgender people, by rejecting gerrymandering maps that are meant to protect whether incumbent Republicans or Democrats. And our citizens, like the level of activation, the fact that women are getting into politics in, in these amazing you know, droves. Emily's List, which is this organization that helps women who come forward and say they want to run, uh, has existed, I think, for 32, 33 years. They, their prior record in a calendar year for the number of women who came forward was 2016. The record was set in 2016. It was 962 women had come forward looking for support to run for office. In 2017, 25,000, <laughs> right? I mean, that's a different kind of Trump effect. So my only point is, if I were you an ambassador, you know, in 2020 or whenever it be, um, I want to be able to tell a thick version of that story about what, I want to talk about governors and mayors who kept with the Paris commitments, you know, and who ensured that even though we were out of the agreement, our level of emissions actually dropped by virtue of the set, you know, so, so there's that. And then on the back end of it, I think the hardest part is going to be our word and 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 the and the kind of you know the, the even though we had George W. Bush's decisions on torture and Iraq and everything that we had to answer for and and had to you know we couldn't pretend like recent history hadn't happened in the Obama administration. I think what's different and singular about Trump is the lying and the fact that a prior president's commitment to something has no standing with him. And so the reason that's a wholly different kind of shadow on a future uh, president and a future administration is when they seek to make agreements which are the backbone of the international order, um, such as it is, you know, the reaction of other countries, well, like, you, you just elected Trump, there's no guarantee you won't elect someone like him again. And moreover, what we had in that administration is proof that there's no continuity anymore from one administration next. So regardless of who you elect, how do we know that what we negotiate with you will... So that's gonna take a lot of work. And I think that the, the, I come back to my, my first point, which is in 2020, when that election occurs, the margin, I mean, I, I don't, I'm not complacent about Trump losing at all because he has a lot of advantages as an incumbent, but the margin of his defeat needs to be really substantial in order to give ballast to the story that this is not who we are, that this was really a blip 
you know, over a long um, and, and far more positive history. Somebody else to say anything? Sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, I tell you what, we'll take three questions. Just so we get a feel yeah. for the audience. Okay, so first one, please. Has somebody got a microphone there? I do. Go ahead. Thank you, Professor Farr. Um, the film makes a really strong case for your approach of giving witness to human experience and showing how policies affect real people. Is that naive in a climate now where empathy seems to be in a really short supply? And if it is, what can you couple with it to make it more robust? and stand up in the real world as people that have Okay, there's one. Let's take another. I'm conscious that I can, there are probably people up the back. Um, but whoever manages to get a microphone can ask the next question. <laughs> Hello. Um, totally enjoyed the movie. Thanks very much. Um, but I was just going to question the role of Hillary Clinton. Had you much contact with Hillary Clinton during the past year? I don't know, where, where are you? You're over there. Okay, great. I'm, I'm even okay. blinder than... This is about Hillary Clinton's involvement. And had she won, would she have been in the movie more? Because I know she's there on the advertising. Okay. There. She's up there. But she doesn't feature really in the movie. And so what's your relationship with her being like? And a third question? Go ahead. Oh, um, well, thanks very much for being here tonight. I was lucky enough to work for President Obama in 2012 um, in DC in Virginia. I suppose my big fear is President Trump will go into 2019 with a Republican-controlled uh, Senate and House. And I'd be interested to see what you think the Democratic message should be outside of just being anti-Trump in the next 10 months. And I suppose then to put you on the spot what your prediction is for the election. <laughs> <laughs> because we know predictions always, always, yeah, come, so always come I'm true. I'm really the master of predictions. <laughs> As you can tell from my election night party, yeah, that was... Uh... <laughs> Stick with me. That was a hell of a that was a hell of a party, by the way. Yeah, very memorable. Really, for about five minutes. Um, okay. Um, uh, okay. The, the, the thing of empathy being seems yeah. naive was the first one. Well, to be honest, even in in the pre-Trump era, you know, I think that that um, dedication or or premise that I brought, you know to trying to tell the human story and get beyond the abstractions and the ideology and the positions to bringing these voices into these debates, whether I would go to the field and then report out to our national security cabinet and principals meeting or whether I would physically bring somebody or video conference in somebody from the field into the Security Council. I mean, there were a lot of raised eyebrows, even in the Obama age, about that. And I just... Uh, that they're wrong and, and this is right and these are the people who are uh, affected by our policy. It doesn't mean that what, what any particular individual says should be done is the right prescription. It just means that for us to simply think in terms of statistics or you know, uh, little men moving on a map and to miss what the consequences of conflict are is not just inhumane, um, but it's not strategic because more and more it is aggrieved citizens who are, you know, can at least and, and have um, uh, ended up, you know, becoming threats to our interest or at least destabilizing forces in their own society. So that's an uphill climb. I think I made a lot of headway. One of the gratifying things in New York before I left was, um, you know, I used to in my statements, instead of just saying, oh, we should do this and that, you know, I would always try to bring it home to, to someone or 
either that I had met or that I had learned about. And um, I noticed that other ambassadors on the Security Council had started doing the same thing. And you know, I'm lucky because my background was as a journalist, and I, I could I could sort of on my good days at least I feel like I could tell a story in a way that wasn't overly sentimental or saccharine, you know, or didn't make them roll their eyes. My colleagues didn't have that background, and so it could be very it could sound like a little hokey, and you know, the Russian ambassador would just be glaring at these people and talking about you know some woman who's walking to a well and. You know, so but but at least these individuals, like their their lives and their fortunes, were part of our discussions. But that's a long term project. It's about young people and people actually live out in the world, people with diverse backgrounds being in government and not just people who've only lived behind the in America, the behind the the fortress of U.S. embassies. You know, it's really, can I just go yeah, very quick follow up on that, Please. which is that um, it seems to me that Vladimir Putin and Donald Trump, one of the things they share in common is a complete repudiation of that as a notion. So you see the anger of your response at the UN, the, the Russian idea of what real politic is, is, is that power is power and nothing else matters. And it seems to me that Donald Trump's philosophy is the same. Yeah. And, and just can I ask you, what is the position of the US military in this regard, given that we now seem to have a government which is, while Donald Trump is in the bedroom watching Fox and Friends, is being run by plutocrats internally and generals externally. And presumably you would have met those generals. Some of them. What's, what, what's their ethical position? Well, it, it, it varies, but I think, you know, the advantage of our military's experience, what they bring to every debate is, is they're out in the field in Iraq. They're dealing with soldiers who've lost family members, who've lost limbs, and it's our military, putting to one side maybe for a second, the empathy and the compassion dimension to it, which I think is, exists and is there. But, but the main thing they see is that these conflicts and these crises can't be dealt with by military force alone. I mean, it, you know, you can stomp out ISIS, but the forces that gave rise to ISIS, you know, the, whether it's, you know, economic despair, you know, or more likely political exclusion, which is what we saw in both Iraq and in Syria, it's our military that's banging on the table and saying, you know, where is the reconstruction money? You know, where is the UN? Um, why isn't the prime minister including Sunni in his uh, account of what Iraq is, you know, going forward, et cetera. So, so I, I think, but, but having said that, you know, if I come in and I've, you know, if I, if I tried to confuse anecdote, you know, for policy prescription, mm -hmm. you know, that would, that would, it would be, it would, you know, clang, I think. And, and that's okay, because it, it should clang. I mean, uh, anecdote is, is data, just like data is data. And, and, but, but it's, the, the fact that those voices are, are, have been generally excluded from these discussions altogether is, you know, remiss really in, in taking into account at least a, a fuller picture. I cut across very rudely, cut across your very interesting question about Hillary Clinton. Oh, so, you know, I, I think, you know, Trump wasn't in the movie, Hillary wasn't in the movie. This was an effort, I think, experientially um, to, sh to lift up the curtain. One, one thing I've learned since the film came, came out or was finished is that no such documentary about the workings of government, to our knowledge at least, exists. In, in the states, so this happens to be about diplomacy. It happens to be about Obama's diplomacy. That's something you know, sort of distinct about the way Obama set about doing things. Maybe distinct about how, how some of us did things, but mainly it's just the flesh and blood of 
decision making, the gray areas, you know, the the humanity of the enterprise, and I hope the integrity of the enterprise. So that's to take nothing away from Secretary Clinton, but but it's not about her campaign. It's not about who's winning. My relationship with her is very good. I was rooting for her, of course, profoundly. But as a national security cabinet member, I had no role, nor did Secretary Kerry or any of us, uh, in campaigning. Like we we have a law that basically prohibited us from from getting into uh, to politics, a law that I can't imagine that um, anybody in this administration would abide by. Um, and then lastly, uh, in terms of what are we for and not just who are we against or what are we against, I think, you know, there have been a couple governor's races that have come out right for uh, Democrats in recent weeks, including that in New Jersey. And, you know, when you lose, everybody says, ah, oh, you know, what was even her slogan? Like, what was she even for? And then, you know, when you win or you become iconic for, or deemed successful for other reasons, people look back at your slogan and they, they add this, you know, mystical uh, genius, you know, to what, and so I remember having this conversation once with, with Dick Goodwin, who was John Kennedy's speechwriter, and he was railing on Obama's back in 08 for our, our uh, slogan, which at that time, it wasn't yes we can at that, I don't even know what the slogan was, but it, it wasn't a great, it didn't sound like a great slogan. And Doris Kearns Goodwin is a historian, his wife, she said, Dick, you know, don't you remember Kennedy's slogan was, move forward, it's time to move forward, you know, and it was just, I was like, you're kidding, that was Kennedy's slogan. So, so that's my caveat, though, Phil Murphy, who just won in New Jersey, if he had a slogan, I mean, mainly he just went around and he listened to people and he just convinced them both that he's not Trump, but that also he has an affirmative vision and here's the set of things he wants to do. So it's not about like, I, it's not I want to be governor, it's here's what I want to do for you as governor. But his slogan was very simple, it was, I, you know, have your back. And I think that whether that's the right slogan, and again, if you lose, it will look like a silly one, but the, the spirit of it is in a sense a rejection of the Trump um, sort of callousness and coldness and lack of empathy and all the rest, but there's something in it also that's um, you know that that speaks to a kind of uh, like a almost a, like a solidarity and maybe even a little bit of a tribalism. Like we're we're in this together. Like and, and but the together for the Democrats is defined much more inclusively and much more broadly uh, than it has been. Does that mean the Democrats need to move in a Bernie more Bernie direction? Oh. I mean, I don't. Th I you know my fear. <laughs> I know a lot of Bernie supporters um, uh, everywhere, it turns out. Uh, <laughs> as a foreign policy professional, you know, I, I was concerned, you know, that, that his is a much more isolation, is much more similar in some ways, I and mean, he wouldn't rip up alliances like Trump is doing or, or uh, denigrate African countries, you know, using words that one can't repeat with one's children. Um, so there are big differences, don't get me wrong, with Bernie, but, but you know, in terms of liberal internationalism and, and continuing to, to you know, kind of try to help shape the international order, it wasn't clear among Bernie's base, at least, that there was a constituency for that, and that's never been something that he had shown a, a large amount of Because the criticism in. I hear from the left of the Democratic Party, I was listening to, I think it was Catherine Van den Heuvel, the editor of The Nation, yeah. uh, was making uh, the criticism that there was... I think she was characterizing an almost an unholy alliance between centrist Democrats and never Trumpers, uh, essentially former neocons, mm. uh, new, who, who were all new cold warriors now. 
and we're in, we're in an alliance. And there was, a, hmm. there was a, a critique of that coming from the left of this was a tradition of interventionism which ran from Clinton through Bush and into Obama in this critique yeah. from the left. Well, I mean, the critique is, there's I'm sure, fair elements of the critique, and, and I think part of what President Obama tried to do was rebalance, and, you know, we had 140,000 troops in Iraq and Afghanistan, you know, when in his first year of office, and got that down to, I think, 13,000 or something, you know, across both theaters by the end, and, um, you know, he tried to make, as you saw in the film, diplomacy the centerpiece of our foreign policy rather than com conflating American leadership with the use of American military force, which has, you know, tended to be a conflation that happens. And even the critique of our Syria policy, you rarely hear, hey, Obama, why didn't you wage a big diplomatic initiative back in 2011, 2012? You know, what you hear about is, you know, why didn't you bomb? And, and so there... There, you know, our whole political culture, in a way, brings some of what Katrina is concerned about to bear, you know, to this debate. But the fact of the matter is, you know, as a country, we are connected with the rest of the world. And what I learned uh, every day when I saw, I guess, affirmed every day when I was ambassador to the UN is when we don't raise our hand and articulate a vision for what the Paris Agreement, for instance, should be, there's not another leader in the room. Now that may change. China may could become that leader on the basis of its economic might and the way it's leveraging that to, to secure support, particularly from non-democratic countries. Um, Europe, you know, is sorting itself, um, but it's going to have some very difficult years ahead with Brexit and all the rest. But we need, you know, they're off. There just needs to be a kind of team captain. Um, and the United States has exercised leadership in flawed ways over the years, and there are a lot of examples of that in terms of the use of military force specifically that haven't turned out well for the world and haven't turned out well for the United States. But having said that, we're living the world now of a full-on retreat. And it's the, the way the rules of the road will get rewritten, and they will, because China and Russia will take advantage of this vacuum, will not be in the interests of democratic citizens in democracies around the world just won't. Whether it's on the rules on cyber or on free speech, I mean, all of those norms that have existed and have been applied imperfectly or, or not at all or inconsistently or whatever over the years, the norms themselves are now being subjected um, to uh, Chinese and, and other, you know, kind of desire to, to see them rewritten. They don't want rules and norms that are not applicable in their own countries to be ones governing the international system. So, um, so I, you know, I think that you, I think the core question is, you know, who, who, who will be out there? I mean, the, this is going to be an ugly period. I've been thinking a lot about this lately. This, the next year, you know, even as people will get, I presume, more and more frustrated with Trump and kind of more alienated and, and repulsed by him, frankly, because that's what it's becoming, even if his base, you know, stays strong, uh, as long as it stays in the 30 to 33 percent range, that creates a big opening for somebody. But that will continue, and I think that'll again get worse. You'll see more and more distancing of Republicans from him as they seek to look out for their own fortunes and, and don't want to be saddled by him. But alongside that will be this scrum 
on the Democratic side. And you know, for those of you who've watched American elections before, it's very unbecoming, right? You'll, so you'll have Bernie, you'll probably have Vice President Biden, you'll have people like Kirsten Gillibrand from New York, you know, who's been very outspoken on you know, the Me Too movement and, and sexual violence throughout her time in, in the Senate. Kamala Harris, maybe Deval Patrick, governor of Massachusetts. I would love to see Joe Kennedy, the congressman from Massachusetts, who's you know as fresh and authentic a, a mind and heart as I've seen in American politics in a long time. But this roster of people, who if you any one of them in isolation, you know, is a very compelling and impressive person. But when they're all up there on the stage together, you yeah. know, you just like, oh. It's a disastrous system right now. But we have, to, we have to not succumb to that and just say, this is the Democratic Party. Like, we're a big, inclusive tent that ranges from Bernie Sanders to some more hawkish, interventionist, you know, people on the other side of the spectrum on, in foreign policy. But also, like, we share the same values, um, you know, about having the back of our neighbor and doing unto others as we'd have done unto ourselves. And... So we're going to have to go through that period, and people are going to have to be a little patient, including me, um, as as this gets worked through. But I have confidence that we Trump does. Samuel Johnson famously said, "There's nothing like a trip to the gallows to focus the mind." <laughs> I was told, we had, I was told we had 35 minutes. We're now well over 45 minutes, so we've broken the rules already, and I'm enjoying this. So let's take two more questions. If you got, I, I, I think we've been favoring the one percent down the front. One percent down the front have been doing far too well. So if we could take two questions from further up, if there's some hands up up further near the back at all, maybe there aren't. Maybe it's just the people down the front who want to ask the questions. Okay, whoever's got the mic. Um, hello, Samantha. Um, so myself and some of my friends were having a discussion as to whether maybe perhaps you were one of the most successful women in Irish politics. <laughs> and, uh, you were the most powerful Irish yeah. woman in the world only three years ago. That was weird. But we also have another um, great Irish uh, female politician called Mary Robinson, and I was actually quite struck during the film about um, some scenes that uh, she had in 1992. Um, you know, when uh, she visited... Um, the famine um, uh, torn parts of, um, of Somalia and very evocative images of her on the TV screens when you were young children watching it and then I was watching you and uh, was uh, quite touched by it and um, I suppose it comes back to the kind of um, issue of like um, a female um, in, in a political role and what it was like for you over the eight years in the Obama administration because you seem to be surrounded by men um, and what, what that must have been like for you and some of the battles that you, you, you won and some of the battles that you lost as well. I'd be very interested to hear that. Um, well, it, I mean, it's, it, it, to try to do justice to your, your excellent question, I, I think that when I was at the UN and the lone woman in a lot of circumstances, my Americanness was much more salient than my womanness. In other words, as the largest donor to the UN, the superpower, military, Barack Obama, my president, I, I think I didn't experience what those, what my, the women who were at my election party, for whom you know this night was gonna be uh, really breaking a glass ceiling for the world and for their countries as well. Like they, they were anticipating great effects over time to us you know, getting this done finally. So I didn't experience it in, in very noteworthy ways, with some exceptions in, in, in New York. But in Washington, uh, I, I did, but I, I have a hard time distinguishing, you know, what, is, what was gendered dismissiveness versus what is 
you know, what the hell is this journalist doing in the Situation Room, <laughs> you know, or why, oh, there she goes again talking about those people she met in the refugee camp, and, you know, so, so I'm trying to sort this through myself. I will say that, um, you know, I've done a lot of reading on race and religion and gender on the, the concept of unconscious bias. Uh, so there's conscious bias, but, you know, in the Obama administration, when you have a president, you know, who's the son of the mother that Barack Obama had, the husband of Michelle Obama, the father of two children, the notion of conscious sexism or dismissiveness toward women, I mean, from the top, that would have been so reprehensible that nobody would, would practice that. So what I think one sees in big institutions that are very male-dominated is just the subtle ways to achieve in the world. You, you can't really think of anything other than North Korea, other than you know dealing with the nuclear weapons program. It needs to be that level of priority because they are very close to having you know capabilities that will allow them to strike you know major American cities um, with nuclear weapons, and that's a threat in, in part because of the um, monstrousness of the of the regime. But having said that, of course, Trump is also giving Kim Jong-un more and more excuses to want to advance his program with these crazy, reckless, um, infantile uh, tweets that, and, and other statements that he's making, threatening even to destroy North Korea. So that's what keeps me up at night, and I think much more diplomacy is needed. Uh, Trump is decimating our diplomatic apparatus this film, and one reason I'm happy to promote it, even though it's not necessarily a film that I would have made, um, is I think it, it is a tool, it will be even a tool over time to, to get some of those individuals who've left the Foreign Service and the Civil Service to come back. Um, we have this thing called the Foreign Service Exam in the US where young people take it and you know, they don't become mid-level diplomats for 10 years or something. Um, the number of people taking that exam now has dropped by uh, half um, because they see so many people leaving, fleeing the State Department because the administration doesn't believe in diplomacy. So it's no surprise that the, there is uh, an anemic diplomatic effort as it relates to North Korea. Um, but there's no way out of the nuclear standoff that doesn't end in terrible, large-scale human tragedy except for diplomacy with all of the imperfections that you saw depicted even, even in our administration when when we you know, relied on experts, we actually you know, cared about allies. You know, we, we had a lot of things going for us and even we, again, really struggled to, to find a way to, to resolve the nuclear threat. And then um, in terms of what any individual can do, I mean, I think Martin Luther King has this great quote that I had never heard until I myself began asking that question of, of what we can do, um, which is some version of, you'll have to Google it, but some version of, um, you know, if you can't be a tree, be a bush. If you can't be a highway, be a trail. You know, there, there's some way in which what Trump is doing is so, just, it so defies, you know, any, any even disappointed vision for what America would ever be in the world. It's a level of cruelty and, and, and a lack and, and, and deceit and all of it. Anyway, all the stuff you know. And so it can just feel like, what can one person do? You know, it's just so big and bad. And if I do this, like, what, what good will that do? And I guess, to me, the answer is very personal for any individual. But uh, you know, the, this phase is about lots of small things. And from in my world in America, it's about 
as I said, the 2018 elections. It's about, for me, in the dirty world of electoral politics where money dominates way more than it should, for me it's about raising money, like lots of money, <laughs> which I don't know how to do, but I'm learning, um, <laughs> on behalf of candidates that I believe in to go to Congress and to stop him in his tracks. But for journalists, you know, it's about, despite being denigrated and savaged uh, by him and having to wear the mantle of fake news even though you're, you know, pursuing uh, factual reporting, it's just about, it's about soldiering on. Um, in our country, as refugees are being now shut out, we still have refugees in our communities who are really struggling to make it. Here in Ireland, there's the homeless problem, there's, just, there's always something that one can do. But I think the low, sometimes we make the best the enemy of the good, and you know, not everyone's gonna be able to like, be the one who stands up to Trump or makes some material difference in the cruelty that he inflicts. But if each of us are doing something in our own communities, that's in a way the best antidote to his objective, which is very much like Putin's objective, which is that people will be so alienated and so divided and so lacking in solidarity, you know, that they'll that they'll tune out and kind of leave the field. And so I think being on whatever the field is, however small, I think that's the best answer. And the, and the specifics of that, I think, again, are very personal. Samantha Barrett, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, guys. Thank you.